Calamity Jane by Lewis R. Freeman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Calamity Jane, an excerpt from Down the Yellowstone by Lewis R. Freeman. Thrilled with the delights of swift water boating as they had been vouchsafed to me in running the mule through Yankee Jim's Canyon, I hastened to make arrangements to continue my voyage immediately upon arriving in Livingston. A carpenter called Sidney Lamartine agreed to build me a skiff and have it ready at the end of three days. Hour by hour I watched my argosy grow, and then, on the night before it was ready to launch, came calamity. In every man's life there is one event that transcends all others in the bigness with which it bulks in his memory. This is not necessarily the biggest thing that has really happened to him. Usually, indeed, it is not. It is simply the thing that impresses most deeply the person he happens to be at the time. The thunderbolt of a living, breathing Calamity Jane striking at my feet from a clear sky is my biggest thing. One does his little curtsy to a lot of queens, real and figurative, in the course of twenty years' wandering, but not the most regal of them has stirred my pulse like the Queen of the Plains. Queens of dance, queens of song, and queens of real kingdoms, cannibalistic and otherwise, there have been, but only one Queen of the Rockies. And this was not because Calamity Jane was either young or beautiful or good. There may have been a time when she was young, and possibly even good, but beautiful, never. So far as my own heart storm was concerned, it was because she had been the heroine of that saffron-hued thriller called The Beautiful White Devil of the Yellowstone, the witch I had devoured in the haymow in my adolescence. The fragrance of dried alfalfa brings the vision of Calamity Jane before my eyes, even to this day. She is the only flesh-and-blood heroine to come into my life. My initial meeting with Calamity was characteristic. It was a bit after midnight. On my way home to the old Albemarle to bed, I became aware of what I thought was a spurred and chapped cowboy in the act of embracing a lamppost. A gruff voice hailed me as I came barging by. Short pants, it called. Oh, short pants. Can't you tell a lady where she lives? Show me where the lady is and I'll try, I replied, edging cautiously in toward the circle of the golden glow. She's me, short pants. Martha Canary, Martha Burke, better known as Calamity Jane. Ah, I breathed, and again. Ah. Then, sure, I'll tell you where you live, only you'll have to tell me first. And thus was ushered in the greatest moment of my life. Calamity, it appeared, had arrived from Bozeman that afternoon, taken a room over a saloon, gone out for a convivial evening, and forgotten where she lived. She was only sure that the barkeeper of the saloon was named Patsy, and that there was an outside stairway up to the second story. It was a long and devious search, not so much because there was any great number of saloons with outside stairways and mixologists called Patsy, as because every man in every saloon to which we went to inquire greeted Calamity as a long-lost mother and insisted on shouting the house. Then, to the last man, they attached themselves to the search party. When we did locate the proper place, it was only to find that Calamity had lost her room key. After a not-too-well-ordered consultation, we passed her unprotesting anatomy in through a window by means of a fire ladder and reckoned our mission finished. That was the proudest night on which I am able to look back. When, agog with delicious excitement, I went to ask after Mrs. Burke's health the following morning, I found her smoking a cigar and cooking breakfast. She insisted on my sharing both, but I compromised on the ham and eggs. 
She had no recollection whatever of our meeting the previous evening, yet greeted me as short pants as readily as ever. This name, later contracted to pants, was suggested by my omnipresent checkered knickers, the only nether garment I possessed at the time. The once and never again Calamity Jane was about fifty-five years of age at this time, and looked it, or did not look it, according to where one looked. Her deeply lined, scowling, sun-tanned face, and the mouth with its missing teeth, might have belonged to a hag of seventy. The rest of her, well, seeing those leather-clad legs swing by on the other side of a signboard that obscured the wrinkled fizz, one might well have thought they belonged to a thirty-year-old cowpuncher just coming into town for his night to howl and younger even than her legs was Calamity's heart, apropos of which I recall confiding to Patsy the barkeep that she had the heart of a young god Pan. Maybe so, grunted Patsy doubtfully, not having had a classical education, he couldn't be quite sure, of course. In any case, she's got the voice of an old tin pan, which was neither gallant nor quite fair to Calamity. Her voice was a bit cracked, but not so badly as Patsy had tried to make out. Another thing, that black scowl between her brows belied the dear old girl. There was really nothing saturnine about her. Hers was the sunniest of souls, and the most generous. She was poor all her life from giving away things, and I have heard that her last illness was contracted in nursing some poor sot she found in a gutter. Naturally, of course, after a decent interval, I blurted out to Calamity that I had come to hear the story of her wonderful life. Right gamely did the old girl come through. Sure, Pants, she replied. Just run down and rush a can of suds, and I'll rattle off the whole layout for you. I'll meet you down there in the sunshine by those empty beer barrels. It was May, the month of the brewing of the fragrant dark brown bock. Returning with a gallon tin pail awash to the gunnels, I found Calamity enthroned on an upended barrel, with her feet comfortably braced against the side of one of its prostrate brothers. Depositing the nectar on a third barrel at her side, I sank to my ease upon a soft patch of lush spring grass and budding dandelions. Calamity blew a mouth hole in the foam, quaffed deeply of the bock, wiped her lips with a sleeve, and began without further preliminary. My maiden name was Martha Canary, was born in Princeton, Missouri, May 1st, 1848. Then, in a sort of parenthesis, this must be about my birthday pants. Drink to the health of the Queen of May, kid. I stopped chewing dandelion, lifted the suds-crowned bucket toward her, muttered, Many happy Maytimes, Queen, and drank deep. Immediately she resumed with, My maiden name was Martha Canary, etc. As a child, I always had a fondness for adventure and a special fondness for horses, which I began to ride at an early age and continued to do so until I became an expert rider, being able to ride the most vicious and stubborn horses. In 1865, we emigrated from our home in Missouri by the overland route to Virginia City, Montana. While on the way, the greater part of my time was spent in hunting along with the men. In fact, I was at all times with the men when there was excitement and adventure to be had. We had many exciting times fording streams, for many of the streams on the way were noted for quicksand and boggy places. On occasions of that kind, the men would usually select the best way to cross the streams, myself on more than one occasion having mounted my pony and swam across the stream several times to amuse myself, and had many narrow escapes. But as pioneers of those days had plenty of carriage, we overcame all obstacles and reached Virginia City in safety. Mother died at Blackfoot in 1866, where we buried her. My father died in Utah in 1867, after which I went to Fort Bridger, remained around Fort Bridger during 1868, then went to Piedmont, Wyoming with UP Railway, 
joined General Custer as a scout at Fort Russell, Wyoming, in 1870. Up to this time, I had always worn the costume of my sex. When I joined Custer, I donned the uniform of a soldier. It was a bit awkward at first, but I soon got to be perfectly at home in men's clothes. I was a scout in the Nez Perce outbreak in 1872. In that war, Generals Custer, Miles, Terry, and Cook were all engaged. It was in this campaign I was christened Calamity Jane. It was on Goose Creek, Wyoming, where the town of Sheridan is now located. Captain Egan was in command of the post. We were ordered out to quell an uprising of Indians and were out several days, had numerous skirmishes during which six of the soldiers were killed and several severely wounded. On returning to the post, we were ambushed about a mile from our destination. When fired upon, Captain Egan was shot. I was riding in advance and on hearing the firing, turned in my saddle and saw the captain reeling in his saddle as though about to fall. I turned my horse and galloped back with all haste to his side and got there in time to catch him as he was falling. I lifted him onto my horse in front of me and succeeded in getting him safely to the fort. Captain Egan, on recovering, laughingly said, I name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. I've borne that name up to the present time. Here, little dreaming what the consequence would be, I interrupted, and for this reason. I had felt that Calamity had been doing herself scant justice all along, but in the christening incident, her matter-of-fact recital was so much at variance with the facts as set down in The Beautiful White Devil of the Yellowstone that I had to protest. "'Excuse me, Mrs. Burke,' I said, "'but wasn't that officer's name Major Percy Darkley instead of Egan? And didn't you cry for life and love when you caught his reeling form?' And didn't you shake your trusty repeater and shout, To hell with the Redskins, as you turned and headed for the fort? And didn't you ride with your reins in your teeth, the major under your left arm, and your six-shooter in your right hand? And when you had laid the major safely down inside the fort, didn't he breathe softly? I thank thee, Jane, from the bottom of a grateful heart. No arm but thine shall ever encircle my waist, for while I honor my wife... Here Calamity cut in, swearing hard and pointedly, so hard and pointedly, in fact, that her remarks may not be quoted verbatim here. The gist of them was that the beautiful white devil of the Yellowstone was highly colored, was a pack of blankety-blank lies, in fact, and of no value whatever as history. I realize now that she was right, of course, but that didn't soften the blow at the time. Trying to resume her story, Calamity, after groping about falteringly for the thread, had to back up again and start with, My maiden name was Martha Canary. She was in a Black Hills campaign against the Sioux in 1875, and in the spring of 76 was ordered north with General Crook to join Generals Miles, Terry, and Custer at the Bighorn. A 90-mile ride with dispatches after swimming the Platte brought on a severe illness, and she was sent back in General Crook's ambulance to Fort Fetterman. This probably saved her from being present at the massacre of the Little Bighorn with Custer and the 7th Cavalry. During the rest of the summer of 76, I was a Pony Express rider carrying the U.S. mails between Deadwood and Custer, 50 miles over some of the roughest trails in the Black Hills. As many of the riders before me had been held up and robbed of their packages, it was considered the most dangerous route in the hills. As my reputation as a rider and quick shot were well known, I was molested very little, for the toll-gatherers looked on me as being a good fellow, and they knew I never missed my mark. My friend William Hickok, better known as Wild Bill, who was probably the best revolver shot that ever lived, was in Deadwood that summer. On the 2nd of August, while sitting at a gambling table of the Bella Union Saloon, he was shot in the back of the head by the notorious Jack McCall, a desperado, I was in Deadwood at the time, and on hearing of the killing made my way at once to the scene of the shooting, 
and found that my best friend had been killed by McCall. I at once started to look for the assassin, and found him at Shirty's butcher shop and grabbed a meat cleaver and made him throw up his hands, through excitement on hearing Bill's death having left my weapons on the post of my bed. He was then taken to a log cabin and locked up, but he got away and was afterwards caught at Fagan's ranch on Horse Creek. He was taken to Yankton, tried, and hung. Here, forgetting myself, I interrupted again in an endeavor to reconcile the facts of Wild Bill's death as just detailed with the version of that tragic event as depicted in Jane of the Plain. Calamity's language was again unfit to print. Wild Bill had not expired with his head on her shoulder, muttering brokenly, My heart was yours from the first, O oh my love. Nor had she snipped off a lock of Bill's yellow hair and sworn to bathe it in the heart blood of his slayer. All blankety-blank lies, just like the white devil. Then, as before, in order to get going properly, she had to back up and start all over with, My maiden name was Martha Canary. This time I kept chewing dandelions and let her run to the finish, thereby learning the secret of her somewhat remarkable style of delivery. This is the way the story of her life concluded. We arrived in Deadwood on October 9, 1895. My return after an absence of so many years to the scene of my most noted exploits caused quite an excitement among my many friends of the past, to such an extent that a vast number of citizens who had heard so much of Calamity Jane and her many adventures were anxious to see me. Among the many whom I met were several gentlemen from eastern cities who advised me to allow myself to be placed before the public in such a manner as to give the people of the eastern cities the opportunity of seeing the Lady Scout, who was made so famous during her daring career in the West and Black Hills countries. An agent of Cole and Middleton, the celebrated museum men, came to Deadwood through the solicitation of these gentlemen, and arrangements were made to place me before the public in this manner. My first engagement to begin at the Palace Museum, Minneapolis, January 20th, 1896, under this management. Hoping that this history of my life may interest all readers, I remain, as in the older days, yours, Mrs. M. Burke, better known as Calamity Jane. Calamity had been delivering to me her museum tour lecture, the which had also been printed in a little pink-covered leaflet to sell at the door. That was why, like a big locomotive on a slippery track, she had had to back up to get going again every time she was stopped. Oh, well, the golden dust from the butterfly wing of romance has to be brushed off sometime. Only it was rather hard luck to have it get such a devastating sideswipe all at once. That afternoon, for the first time, I began to discern that there was a more or less opaque webbing underlying the rainbow-bright iridescence of sparkling dust. With Calamity Jane the heroine evanishing like the blown foam of her loved Bach, there still remained Martha Burke, the human document, the living page of thirty years of the most vivid epoch of Northwestern history. Compared to what I had hoped from my historic researches in the pages of The Beautiful White Devil of the Yellowstone, this was of comparatively academic, though nonetheless real, interest. Reclining among the dandelions the while, Calamity oiled the hinges of her memory with beer, I conned through and between the lines of that record for perhaps a week. Patiently diverting her from her lecture platform delivery, I gradually drew from the strange old character much of intimate and colorful interest. Circulating for three decades through the upper Missouri and Yellowstone valleys, and gravitating like steel to the magnet wherever action was liveliest and trouble the thickest, she had known at close range all of the most famous frontier characters of her day. Naturally, therefore, her unrestrained talk was of Indians and Indian fighters, road agents, desperadoes, gamblers, and bad men generally, 
from Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody, to Miles and Terry and Custer, to Crazy Horse, Rain in the Face, Gall, and Sitting Bull. She told me a good deal of all of them, not a little indeed, which seemed to throw doubt on a number of popularly accepted versions of various more or less historical events. I made notes of all of her stories on the spot, and at some future time of comparative leisure, when there is a chance to cross-check sufficiently with fully established facts from other sources, I should like to make some record of them. These pages are not, of course, the place for controversial matter of that kind. One morning I kept tryst among the dandelions in vain. Inquiry at the saloon revealed the fact that Calamity, dressed in her buckskins, had called for her stabled horse at daybreak and ridden off in the direction of Big Timber. She would not pay for her room until she turned up again, Patsy said. It was a perfectly good account, though. She never failed to settle up in the end. I never heard of her again until the papers, a year or two later, had word of her death. End of Calamity Jane by Lewis R. Freeman Read by Colleen McMahon